Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Commercial real estate, boy, I'm just, you know, walking down the streets of New York City, uh, Renita, lots of empty space. Lots of empty, it's right across the street from where we are and next yep. door. Yep, and next door, uh, lots of commercial real estate, uh, empty. Um, but, uh, you know, on the residential side, it is extraordinarily hot, and I can attest to that. Let's talk all things real estate. We do that with Hassam Naji, president and chief executive officer of Marcus and Millichap, uh, a real estate uh, firm based in Calabasas, California. I've been to Calabasas, mm. California. Pretty cool place. All right, uh, Hassam, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys reported some earnings this morning. Uh, give us the lowdown of what you were uh, reporting today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the program. We were very proud to report the uh, largest revenue and net income quarter in our 50-year history. The second quarter was a reflection of a lot of delayed and canceled transactions that we're still able to resurrect from last year, as well as incredible new demand from buyers that see commercial real estate as a great investment because the economy is recovering. We added almost a million jobs uh, in July, and we're back to uh, 16.5 million jobs of the 22 million that we had lost. So the recovery is bringing a lot of confidence into the fact that eventually those empty spaces you were talking about right there in Manhattan will get re occupied. And interest rates are so low with so much liquidity in the marketplace that the investment community is seeing real estate as a great play right now, given where stocks are at, given what bonds are at, and the fact that commercial real estate has proven to be a very good inflation hedge going into an economic expansion. So all those things are happening. We as a company have had a number of key uh, execution strategies. We've acquired nine firms in the last three years. We have done a number of technology upgrades, which were just in time for the pandemic, where we had no downturn in our operations or any kind of a disruption. Thankfully, technology investments have really paid off. And that productivity that we brought to our sales force is, uh, is really showing up in the numbers. Breaking out the types of commercial real estate that are the most popular ones, where do you see that? I mean, it's hard to believe it's offices, but is it restaurants? Is it gyms? What kind of uh, commercial real estate is seeing the most success? Well, the uh, beauty of commercial real estate is that there's something for everyone on the menu. Uh, for risk-averse investors, aging baby boomers that are very yield and cash flow sensitive, apartments and single-tenant net lease, those are your drugstores, your fast food restaurants, auto parts, uh, types of outlets where you have one tenant on a long-term lease, the, the cash flow is very predictable. They're, they've been incredibly popular. Apartments have been very popular for uh, many, many decades because they're stable regardless of the economic cycle for the most part. And uh, there is so much demand for affordable housing that apartment demand has been very, very strong. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have hotels and uh, office buildings to, to a very large extent and shopping centers 
that were hit incredibly hard by the pandemic, of course. And for those more higher risk, higher return types of investors, those asset classes are providing a phenomenal, uh, if you will, acquire and fix it or acquire and ride the recovery play. And we're seeing both ends of those safety and then more high risk, high return uh, ends of the spectrum play out in the marketplace. You know, maybe it's just I have my New York City bias here, but I am less cautious, much less cautious on the rebound of commercial real estate. You know, we're just seeing, uh, Hassam, some companies like Wells Fargo and uh, BlackRock announce some delays in bringing people back to the office. I think this is going to be folks just kind of feeling it out a little bit. I think you're right. In the urban markets where we have so much dependency on public transportation, the uh, new rounds of outbreaks have been a major concern, even without, fr- frankly, the uh, the resurgence of new cases, COVID cases. We knew that the urban markets would take time to recover. People are going to be cautious, and there is going to be a kind of a dampening effect on office space usage and office space demand in the near term, probably the next 12 to, to 18 months. But on the other end of the scale, if you look at the fact that new business formations in the United States are at a record high, we're seeing this job growth resurgence and changes in the economy where people have discovered you can have a hybrid work model. People can work from home some of the time at least and and commute much less and be more productive. On top of all that, you're seeing new generation of uh, companies forming. Companies will eventually start to expand, and there will be a backfill for demand uh, that is dampened by this new hybrid model and and cautiousness. It's not a straight-up recovery where it's a hockey stick for for the office market. We don't expect that. Uh, But we do believe that there will be a recovery. In urban America, has so many different benefits that were uh, really thriving pre-pandemic. And I think it's a matter of time before those come back. And I would imagine that that's part of the reason why some of the markets that were hardest hit by the pandemic are also poised for the biggest recovery. We're talking New York, San Francisco, Austin, correct? Absolutely. If you look at the uh, 12-month job creation, uh, New York is uh, number one over the last 12 months at 8.3% employment growth with over 320,000 jobs created. It's the number one metro on this list that I'm looking at, produced by our research department, followed by Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, D.C., Atlanta, Detroit, and northern New Jersey. Uh, from a percentage perspective, those metros, a lot of those metros were hit very, very hard, and they're making a big comeback, to your point. All right, talk to us about interest rates here. We're obviously uh, historically low interest rates, although do have the rates popping up today with a 10-year up to about one29 percent on that strong jobs gain. Uh, People are betting that rates are, in fact, going to rise again from historically low levels. How sensitive is kind of the commercial side of the real estate business to interest rates? It's very sensitive because the cost of debt plays a big part in the way you value commercial real estate. Most commercial real estate, the vast majority uh, of the transactions do rely on financing from banks and credit unions and other forms of, of lenders, life insurance companies, uh, the uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, CMBS marketplace, and therefore interest rates play a big part. On average, we see loan-to-value ratios of somewhere between 60 to 70 percent, depending on the property type. So where interest rates go, valuations 
uh, follow. And uh, we are expecting interest rates to rise. They have to. They, we can't stay at these record low levels forever. But the beauty of the balance in the marketplace for commercial real estate is that if inflation is coming back, if interest rates are rising, and those are being accompanied by job growth, by new occupancies, by some new demand of filling those empty spaces you were commenting on in Manhattan and other places, then the rents should be going up and the income levels of the properties should be going up along with inflation and along with interest rates. That's why commercial real estate is viewed as an inflation hedge, especially property types like hotels, which are marked to market on a daily basis, depending on demand for their room rates, and apartments, which typically have a 12-month lease. And uh, uh, we're, we don't get concerned about interest rates rising as long as it's rising for the right reasons, economic growth and, and new demand uh, being created. If we get v- variations in interest rates because of some shock yep. or because of some credit freeze, that's a whole different story. All right, Assam, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective and experience. Assam Naji, CEO of real estate firm Marcus and Millichap. Uh, MMI is the stock symbol, ticker to put into your Bloomberg. They reported some earnings. Uh, so we appreciate getting his thoughts on the real estate market. Good news uh, on the economy to uh, end the week here. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get some um, insight into some of that economic data. We welcome Sarah House. She's director and senior economist at Wells Fargo's Corporate and Investment Bank. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your take on the jobs number and kind of where we are in this economic reopening. Yeah, I think all around it was a pretty strong report that was hard to find fault with. So, of course, we saw payrolls come in better than expected. We saw a nice upward revision to the prior two months. The unemployment rate fell for all the right reasons, as as we did see a drop in the number of people reported unemployed, even as the labor force rose. And, of course, we saw another decent gain in, in earnings. Um, I think if you want to nitpick with with the report, you could probably look at the participation rate and, and maybe wonder why it's it's not rising further. But I think it comes down to the fact that there's still a lot of, of constraints on the labor supply right now. And I think given where we are with the Delta variant, we're, we're probably going to see those constraints get prolonged a, a little bit here in the upcoming months. Sarah, when we look at that uh, increased cost of labor, like why the sharp jump in wages over the past few months? Um, what do you think may be contributing to that? It just speaks to how reluctant I think a lot of workers are to come back, either because they are concerned about the coronavirus or they have child care issues. And so I think what we're, we're seeing is that employers have, have really had to pony up to get workers back in the door, especially in those lower pay sectors where maybe those extra unemployment benefits are, are replacing a higher rate of income. Um, but also those are the same sectors where you are doing a lot of in-person contact. And so there are greater health risks. And so employees have, have to be compensated for that. And we've seen a, a pretty sharp jump in, in wages as a result. So, for example, just in the leisure and hospitality sector, wages are up about 8% since the start of the year. Were yeah. there any other standout sectors that you saw? 
Well, transportation and warehousing is, has been another. So this is an area that's obviously been in high demand given the strength in good spending that we've seen over the course of the pandemic. And this is also another sector that you tended to have a, a lower pay rate to begin with. And so that, that means that you're going to have to see um, stronger wages there, I think, to entice some workers back in, into the jobs market, again, given those health concerns and, and the offset provided by some of those unemployment benefits. Sarah, okay, so now the discussion, I think, pivots a little bit to the Fed. What does the Fed take away from this jobs report and maybe some of the other eco data we see out there? Yeah, I think overall this is a, a pretty strong report, and what the Fed wants to see is as far as progress grow, goes on the labor market. I think the big question, though, is this enough to maybe move some of the more dovish members of the Fed um, off their their taper timing? Um, I think you know this certainly ticks the box if you're in the Governor Waller camp, but I think when you look at the clouds on the horizon with with the Delta variant and how that might slow the the timing of when we get clarity on on just how much the the labor supply comes back, I think that might keep some folks wanting to see um, that fall data, which would probably put the taper uh, announcement more towards December. And it may or may not raise the case for raising rates. Right. So, I mean, I think the the case for for raising rates is is still pretty far off. But what we've seen, um, you know, particularly from Governor Waller's comments, but even from uh, Vice Vice Chair Clarida's comments as well, is that they are thinking about the the flexibility later on down the road. So if we continue to see upside surprises in inflation, if we continue to see some pretty strong jobs numbers and rapid improvement in in the labor market, they they want that optionality. But I think we, we still see some some near-term risks on the horizon that we think they'll, they'll probably stay patient a little longer yet. And Sarah, I just want to follow up on that inflation point you were making here. I mean, on those rare days when I was paying attention in economics class, uh, I was taught you can't really have real inflation unless you're going to have wage inflation. And I'm not sure. This report kind of suggests that that's on the table here. How do you think about inflation and and going forward? Well, I think we have some continued upward pressure that we're seeing. So, you know, there's a couple of, of the categories that have made a lot of headlines like used autos that are, are probably due, due for some payback here pretty soon. But we still have a lot of pressure in the system if we look at what's happening across supply chains and what that's doing to the goods picture. But I think what's really important as we look further down the road is this. Um, pressure that we are seeing from from the labor side. Now, part of this might be a little bit overstated of what the post-COVID trend is, given that there is this timing mismatch between how soon employers want workers back and, and how soon that labor is willing to return. And so we have seen some you know, pretty remarkable increases, at least um, within different industries over, over the past few months. But I think this is a, a source of probably more durable inflation pressures over over the coming months is going to keep the overall pace of inflation elevated and and slow to return back toward the the Fed's 2% target. And how much does this Delta variant threaten this progress and any uh, near-term progress? 
think it threatens to slow the progress. I don't think this is going to derail the expansion by any means. So you know, we have tools to deal with the virus. So, you know, as compared to the, the prior waves, we have access to really good vaccines. And then we have learned over the course of, of the past 16 months or so how to do business and, and how to still um, have access you know, economic activity within um, within this environment. So businesses have adjusted. Um, we have we we know how to um, have better health hygiene, and so I think that's going to limit the the dent to activity. But it is going to to weigh on the margin, and so I think right. um, again, probably somewhat slower um, than we would have expected maybe a month or six weeks ago. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and insights. Sarah House, director and senior economist for Wells Fargo's Corporate and Investment Bank. Right now, let's go talk about uh, getting some of these Wall Street folks back into the office. Uh, Renita and I are here back yes, in the office in the Bloomberg are. Interactive Brokers <laughs> Studio. But we've seen uh, you know, some news come out over the last couple of days from the likes of Wells Fargo and, and BlackRock that right. perhaps, perhaps they are going to delay this from September to October. Amazon came back and said, all the way to January, but let's talk about the Wall Street folks. And to do that, we welcome Hannah Levitt. She's a finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone uh, from New York. So Hannah, it seems like we're seeing some of these big investment banks backtrack a little bit on their scheduling. Yeah, so it's it's really a confusing time, right? Because there's this rise in cases, there's the new um, CDC guidance. And so, well, different banks were already taking, you know, for each bank, there's their own approach. And that gulf has kind of gotten wider uh, recently. And what you're seeing is you have two firms, really, uh, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, that are really leading the charge on return to office. You know, they called workers back, at least on a part-time basis, uh, earlier this summer. And then you have some other firms that are taking it slower. And so that's like Wells Fargo, for example, you know, they were pointing to early September as when they were going to start that process of, of getting people back into the office. And they said yesterday that it would be um, October instead. So, and, and we saw BlackRock do the same thing. So it's, yeah, there definitely is, uh, you know, different approaches going on here. Hannah, do you know what? I wonder if this has more to do with the data for the Delta variant, or it has to do with the fact that a lot of people are resigning if their companies ask them to go into work. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting question. And I also think that, um, something worth exploring here is just, you know, for the firms that have already, started doing this, I don't know how you unring that bell um, so that, you know, you're dealing with kind of apples and oranges when you're talking about, um, you know, sending people back home versus when you start bringing people back. Mm. So uh, follow up on Renita's line there. I mean, are we, is there examples where we've had like major, I don't know, groups or trading desks or say, or maybe a regional office in Florida or Texas saying we don't really need to come back? Um, you know, I mean, I think it, when you think about some of these big banks, you think about all, all the locations that they have and them really being, you know, a cross section of the country in that way. And especially when you are when you start looking at like their branch operations as well, uh, which is kind of a different question because those people have been going in uh, this whole time. But, yeah, I think that that people's reactions, my sense is at the banks kind of um, you get the diversity of reactions that, you know, you're you're seeing and reading about. Elsewhere. So, 
you know what I see also, we know that Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan there, they are not uh, forcing workers to get the shot. Um, but we found out last week, I believe, that it would be legal for employers to require shots. And so I wonder how much of that also played into the decision. Yeah, yeah. And we've, we've, we have seen them stop short, you know, a couple uh a couple of banks have warned that this might be on the table, but no one uh, of the big, you know, of the giant lenders like J.P. Morgan and Goldman have not mandated that. Uh, we've seen Morgan Stanley say only vaccinated employees can return to our uh, mm-hmm. New York offices. But then, you know, we we wrote about yesterday two vaccinated employees then got uh, COVID at their office. So this really just shows, again, like the the different approaches that are being taken and also the reality that. Um, this pandemic is still very much going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Hannah, we had, I remember we made a pretty big deal when J.P. Morgan brought their people back. I know Sonali Bastic from Bloomberg News was actually reporting on site there in New York City at their headquarters. Have we had any feedback from the J.P. Morgan folks about how things might be going? I mean, I think, so they were, people at J.P. Morgan were going back into the office. Um, for They've been doing that for a while. So the, there was, um, you know, at the time, which I believe they put out a memo in May or June saying by July, people should be in, you know, at least part time. Um, but a lot of people were already going in. Um, and so I think that that stayed pretty consistent. And lastly, uh, do you think that um, just going forward, this might be a thing that companies may do? They may require workers to get the shot or, uh, or else. I think that's a great question, and uh, I, I mean we've seen we've seen firms in other industries do it. So I guess the question really is: Are are these banking giants going to take the plunge and do that? And I, I guess that remains to be seen. All right, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hannah Levitt, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from New York. Now let's get over to Ethan Devitt. She is the CIO at Moneta. They've got twenty-seven point four billion dollars in assets under management. And first off, um, well, first off, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Let me ask what you, uh, your reaction is to this jobs number. Well, obviously, I would consider this quite a lagging indicator here in that um, this was a jobs report which came out in advance of the Delta variant leading to increased mask mandates across the country. And just ongoing uncertainty, just saw today the auto show in New York was cancelled. And we, you know, this is that we're in a climate of great uncertainty. And if we have renewed mask mandates, will this mean certain indoor venues will close? And what's going to happen to um, to, to the employment in, in that case? So I'd say it's really it, it's interesting and it is certainly consoling to markets. The markets have reacted accordingly. But I see this as actually more looking to the past, uh, not really an indicator of what the rest of the summer and the fall will hold. All right. It's a very good point. And the uptick in the Delta variant has been disturbing, to say the least. We've seen it affect the real economy with a number of uh, Wall Street firms and mega cap tech firms pushing back their return to work. Um, how, you know, how, how difficult is it to work with this kind of uncertainty? It's extremely 
extremely difficult. And I've said before that markets really are sort of fishing for answers right now. They're sort of playing around in, in areas such as the, um, you know, is this going to be good for the stay-at-home stocks, the tech stocks, the Pelotons, the Zooms, the, um, the, the Slacks? Or are we going to see a return to some of the value names that were overlooked and that we saw cyclically come back at the beginning of the year, but that then fall off again as some of the uncertainty came in in the summer? So I think it's really a question of fishing. Uh, there is still strong support. I've spoken before about the wall of money that I believe is still poised to enter markets upon a correction. Every correction is is very short-lived, as we've seen even you know, this past week and, and last week. It, does, it really is a, a day long, and then markets will, will, will crowd back in again. Investors will crowd back in again. And for that reason, it's really everything is happening real-time. It's very dynamic. We're in very short cycles right now. So tremendous uncertainty, but still the momentum is still upwards. I want to talk about the persistence of two things then. From your perspective, inflation and ESG investing, I know they're very different issues, but um, I have the same question in each one. So is inflation transitory? Let's start with that one. I don't believe that it is. I think we are here with significantly higher rates of inflation than we've been comfortable with over the past say, number of years, where we've really been hovering around about 2%. There have been deflationary forces causing that, you know, just generally the, the gig economy and components come down. And then, of course, supply shortages and, and other disruptions of COVID led to the somewhat artificial supply constraints, which have led to some of the increases we're seeing now. But, um, but I don't believe it's transitory. I think we are looking at sustained higher levels for at least the next 18 months. And you know, co- companies have been able to weather the storm so far. There has been a buildup of inventory. They have been relatively able to, to push prices through to consumers. They have still pricing power. I think that we're going to see margins contracting as a result of persistent inflation. That's going to cause jitters. And I think consumers themselves are going to kind of let the ebullience die down a little bit from, from stimulus checks and, uh, and from the pent-up cash pile that they built over COVID. That will dissipate. And then we're going to see, I think, inflation really starting to bite. Yeah, I mean, um, we're starting to hear that from more and more economists and more business leaders. Honeywell International's um, CEO, Darius Adamczyk, yesterday told us that he sees downward pressure on supply and upward pressure on demand. And he's not seeing either one of those things kind of um, turn look like they're going to turn around in the near future. How do you think the Fed is going to start? Um, to react to this? Because now we even, you know, some members of the Federal Reserve um, uh, Open Monetary Committee are, are starting to say the same thing. I don't see them reacting. I think they will find any way in order to, to, to classify inflation as that it is not a, a real-time concern. They're prepared to tolerate a, a somewhat higher levels of inflation. We've already seen that. I think what is dominating the Fed's response is their unwillingness to rock the boat of the so-called, I think it's still a fragile economic recovery. I think the Delta variant is a reminder that we're not back to to, to normal yet, much as many would like, and therefore markets are still quite fragile. And I see the Fed as being more driven by the desire not to rock that boat than than a need to react to inflation, which they don't think so far is is, is actually too much of a concern. Uh, So can you take advantage of that as an an investor? Or is it too difficult? I mean, don't fight the Fed is hard. Don't, yeah, don't fight the Fed. Um, if we're going to look at lower for longer rates, that's going to mean that traditional fixed income is not going to be a, a great, still not going to be a great place to be. And we're not in a rising rate environment, but I, I still don't think there's a particular good upside in core fixed income today. I think whether the Fed likes to recognize it or not, inflation is here. And how do we 
respond to inflation and how do we allow portfolios to be um, to be resilient against inflation? Well, equity, traditional equity holdings are traditionally a good hedge against inflation in the medium to long term, not for inflation shocks. But given that most investors have a solid equity underpinning of their portfolios, I believe those portfolios will be resilient in the medium term. As far as inflation shocks, typically commodities might respond well to, to mm. inflation shocks, but they tend to be too volatile for most investors to hold. So what like commodities, well, real assets, infrastructure investing, real estate investing, they tend to have more typical triggers that are linked to inflation and to provide more inflation resilience going forward. So I always encourage investors to have a portion of their portfolio that is designed to participate in inflationary conditions and not just medium to long-term conditions, but also inflationary shocks. And that's where real assets come in. Great, great insight. Let's get to ESG now and want to get your take on this because it's a conundrum, right? You want to do good, but you also want to make returns. Can you do both? Absolutely. We believe in sustainable investing. And I would question whether any business model that is not sustainable would actually be a long-term business model you would want to be investing in anyway. I think the notion that um, ESG investing involves a return sacrifice is a somewhat antiquated one. I think now investors are more sophisticated and more aware of the nuances in that ESG, I've described it as a hygiene factor going forward, that ESG risks are just like any set of risk factors that will have to be assessed in any assessment of a portfolio or an investment fund investment. So I would say that you know ESG factors are now just part of the investment due diligence so that we're aware of that. And when it, the decision is made as to whether a risk reward is attractive, that will take into account the ESG factors. As far as certain other areas like, say, renewable energy or water conservation, they may have quite distinct kind of missions or purposes attached to those investments. There may be an investor who is passionate about ocean conservation and wants to invest in a water technology fund. That would still have to have a meaningful rate of return, I would suggest, before it makes a a viable investment opportunity. I don't believe in return sacrifice, but I do believe in looking at it holistically in terms of what you want to achieve from your investment. All right, Ethan, thanks very much for joining us. Ethan Devitt there, Chief Investment Officer at Moneta. And uh, we're talking, obviously, about a little bit about ESG, but a lot about um, the jobs number, the Fed reaction, and how you as an investor can cash in on discrepancies that we see in this, in this market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.